quiet? Do it sound like I'm quiet to you? As loud as I'm hollering, you call me quiet? I'm hollering loud because I can back up every word. And I'll whoop any man in the world, and I want everybody out there on TV to know it. I am the greatest. The referee stops the fight. It'll be scored as a technical knockout. Muhammad Ali retains a hit. This is Chasing Ali with Jonathan Ige. When you're starting on a new book, the most important thing is the, is the right idea. Writing a book about Muhammad Ali is the best idea I ever had. Almost immediately, I get this sort of dream picture in my head of, of how unbelievably big and interesting this book could be. I pictured this big, fat, you know, six, seven hundred page book covering this huge slice of American history, of American culture. You've got great, great characters. You've got, you know, he was married four times, so you're going to have some sex. You're going to have some conflict. You've got Don King. Any book with Don King in it, you know, how can you go wrong? The guy is just so funny and so fascinating. And, and some people would say, you know, so sleazy. Uh, and, and there's just going to be all of these great, great characters. You know, you've got the mafia, you've got boxers, you've, and, and then a lot of these people are still alive. So how much fun am I going to have going around talking to all these folks over the course of doing a book on Ali? I mean, I, I couldn't have been more excited. I loved all of the book ideas that I've, that I've had. I, I love being a journalist and going out, you know, every day on a new assignment. I don't think I was ever as excited about the beginning of a project as this one. I just decided I'm writing the book. And, you know, my wife always says to me, you know, what gives you the right? Why should you get to be... A, Muhammad Ali's biographer or Lou Gehrig's biographer. And there is no answer to that. You just have to go out and take it and say, if no one stops me, then I'm going to do it. And that was my attitude. And I began by calling people who knew Ali and seeing how close I could get to them and trying to arrange some interviews and calling myself Muhammad Ali's biographer. It, it, it was a leap, but um, I was happy to take it. I mean, I've interviewed all kinds of celebrities. I've been to White House press conferences. I, I've, you know, you get used to that kind of stuff. But uh, writing about Ali, I mean, when I was 10 and he fought uh, George Foreman in Zaire, somehow one of my friend's fathers got a tape of the fight. And back then you couldn't see these fights until like weeks later when they aired on, on ABC. Um, you had to go to a movie theater to see him. And I wasn't, my parents weren't going to let me go to, to a movie theater when I was 10 to, to watch a fight late at night. So the, the fact that one of my neighbor's fathers had a videotape of the of the fight and we watched it on those big those big reels that he hooked up to his tv set somehow it was like magic to me and we all went into the basement must have been 20 30 people there kids and grown-ups um in the middle of a saturday afternoon i can still remember it to watch ali foreman on a film when hardly anybody had seen it yet at least you know the kids hadn't seen it yet oh my god i could st I, I still get excited it was bigger ali fights were all huge events in the 70s you know any heavy ch heavyweight championship fight but ali especially because he was this beautiful, exciting, funny star, and he was provocative, and he was dangerous, and you know you couldn't get enough of him. And the thought that I could end up writing his biography, that I could end up meeting him, that I could interview George Foreman or some of these guys, Larry Holmes and Don King, that I could end up immersing myself in this world, I mean, it was just beyond exciting to think about. You, you own it. You know, it takes years. It took four years. It took hundreds, maybe five, six hundred interviews, years of convincing people to talk to you. I mean, you don't just call and say, Mrs. Ali, I'd like to interview you about your husband it you know it takes years of gaining their trust and you know even Don King the first time I called him he said I'm sorry I'm too busy I'm, I'm working on the Middle East peace right now and you know call me back another time it took me two and a half years before I finally got Don King to sit down and talk to me I guess you know he gave up on the Middle East peace that the journey is what I want to talk about in this podcast because the hard stuff the stuff that I gathered the great material that I uncovered the FOIA requests you know Ali's military records all you know all this stuff is in the book but the stories of going out and, and finding these people and, and getting to know them and drinking with Larry Holmes and pinning down Don King and getting to know Ali's wives. That's the stuff I want to talk about in this podcast. And I, I want to share some of this journey because it's been, for me, the most 
fun and the most en enriching journey of my professional career. When you're starting out on a book or on any new job, I suppose, you're faking it. And I know that uh, I felt like I was faking it when I went around telling people I was Muhammad Ali's biographer. I hadn't interviewed anybody yet. I hadn't written anything yet. I'd read a few books about Ali, but that was about it. And you have to do that at a certain point. You have to begin somewhere. Somebody has to be your first interview. And you're going to be ignorant. You're going to, be, you're going to embarrass yourself. And you just got to suck it up. And eventually, three, four years down the road, I probably know more about Ali than, than anybody alive, except maybe his wives. There were, I know things now about Ali that Ali didn't know. But in the beginning, I was a complete idiot in many ways. And, and uh, I found that out the hard way with my first interview, which was um, with Ferdy Pacheco, who was Ali's ring doctor. Now, there wasn't as much awareness about the, the, the damage of head injuries when you were starting out. Was that a concern for, you know, for, uh, in, in the medical world? Me. Yeah. I'm the one that started all that about post-concussions, I don't know. And in the gym, which is where I formulated my, my, my stance against, against not paying attention to it, mm -hmm. because nobody pays attention. Oh, he, he'll be all right to fight till Saturday. No, he won't. No, he won't. Oh, yeah, he can fight, but he's going to add more, more damage. So. And that's what made me fight him. Uh, ring doctor is kind of a funny term, like a boxing doctor, isn't that kind of like an oxymoron? If you're a doctor, you should be telling people not to box. You shouldn't be helping them box more. And when you tried to say something about that, if you tried to stop somebody from fighting, what kind of reaction you did you get? You didn't stop them mm -hmm. from fighting. You got, a, you got a manager and a, and a trainer in the corner, they stopped them from fighting. You could say, Angelo, this guy's got a broken jaw, we ought to stop the fight. And he said, no, 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 we'll get him this round. What can you say to him? It was the first round when he broke his jaw. He was with Norton. He should have knocked out Norton. Should have. Mm -hmm. But he didn't because he had a broken jaw. He couldn't fight like that. Well, that's the position I was in. I, I can say to him, Angelo, this is wrong. You should not let this guy fight with a broken jaw. It's hurting him. His jaw's moving. It, this is terrible. And yet, I, I, I couldn't get stopped because in the corner, Way down there was his manager of the black Muslims who was milking him for every dime he had. And he was saying, don't stop this fight. Ooh, this is going to look bad for us. It's going to look bad for the Muslims that we let them stop a fight. So why was he my first interview? It was New Year's Eve of uh, 2013. And my father-in-law, who lives in Boca, said he knew Ferdy Pacheco, that he'd done some business with him. And he gave me his phone number. So that's as good an in as I, as I had. I really didn't know anybody else in Ali world yet, so I've got a phone number for Ferdy Pacheco. I call him. His wife answers the phone, and she says, yeah, you can come by and talk to him, but he doesn't like doing interviews, and, and he definitely won't talk about Muhammad Ali. Okay, well, that could be a problem. Um, and, oh, and, and he'd suffered a stroke recently. He wasn't in the best of health, so she was just warning me that, you know, come by, but don't expect much, and don't ask him about Muhammad Ali. So, of course, I'm going to ask him about Muhammad Ali, I and mean, that's the only reason I'm doing this. But I figured I'll start in gradually, and I'll find a way to, to make him comfortable and eventually get him talking about Ali, I hoped. But remember, this is my first interview, so I'd, I'd read up on Pacheco, and I'd read his book, and I'd read some books about Ali and how Pacheco figured in. And the important thing about Pacheco, really, is that he was one of the few people who tried to get Ali to stop boxing, telling him that you're suffering brain damage, that this is bad for you, that you're... You know, you're starting to show the effects of dementia pretty early on, like mid-70s. So I wanted to ask him about that, you know, why he continued with Ali even after he warned him and why, why Ali didn't heed those warnings. And, you know, in the 70s, we didn't know as much about CTE as we do now about brain injuries. So 
I really wanted to get some of that from Pacheco, but at the same time, you know, I was warned by his wife that he probably didn't want to talk about Muhammad Ali. So I drove to his home. He lived in Miami Beach, pulled up in the driveway and got my tape recorder and ready in my pocket and all that and got my notebook out and went into his house and met his wife. And she said, Ferdy will be out in a minute. He's just getting dressed. And she left. She went shopping. And so it was me and Ferdy alone in the house and a, and a housekeeper who was in the kitchen um, cleaning up. And I looked around and there are all these paintings. Ferdy's a, a painter and sells his paintings at charity auctions and stuff. And there are all these paintings and cans of paintbrushes and easels set up all over the place. And most of the paintings are of Ali. And he's got this huge wall of, of history books. So I thought, that's good. You know, he's, he's a reader and um, he, he appreciates the importance of history. That, that maybe helps me a little bit. And um, so Ferdy came out of his room and sat down in a chair right by the front door, kind of like in the entryway to the home. And I sat on a little bench opposite him. We weren't in the living room. We weren't on couches and comfortable chairs. We were in this sort of like in-between space, which was not exactly comfortable. And I had the feeling that I, it wasn't clear that he was going to he certainly wasn't welcoming me in and offering me a drink and, you know, make telling me to feel at home. So I, I was immediately made uncomfortable. And then he said, so what do you want? And I, I knew this was uh, okay. I said, um, so I'm writing a book about Muhammad Ali, and um, I would just love to talk to you about it. I don't want to talk about Ali. I don't want to talk about any of that. Um, so I'm already, like, stammering a little bit and feeling uncomfortable. I didn't take out my tape recorder or my notebook yet. I was just trying to establish some rapport with him, really. I said, well, I don't want to talk about Ali. I want to talk about you. I want to know about you. You're an important part of this story. You're an important part of Ali's life. And I just want to understand what got you interested in boxing and why, you know, a doctor would, would go to work in a boxing gym. And, and just help me understand, you know, your role in Ali's life. Let's talk about you. And usually people love to talk about themselves, and that's a, a good way to make people warm up to you. But he was, just wasn't having any of it. That's a stupid question. That's, that's basic. He kept saying, that's basic. That's basic. Everything I said, that was his, his retort. That's basic. And, and he was right in a way. My questions were fairly basic because I was just starting out. I hadn't interviewed a lot of people yet. I hadn't done the kind of research that I was going to do down the line. You're very basic. You're doing an interview for you about me in a gym. Did that have something to do with Ali and the book? I mean, you know, that's so basic. Well, I'm... And wrong, and wrong. When I had to do the gym, had nothing to do with Ali. Well, that's where you met him, though, and you obviously became... Yeah, well, that's where I met him, and that's where I treated him as a boxer. Right. As a boxer, not as a friend. Jimmy Ellis, I had as a friend. Louis Rodriguez, I had Willie Persson. I had a lot of friends, but not Ali. Um, I ended up doing all kinds of new research on all these brain injuries. I can tell you, th you know, there are things in the book that will be really revealing about how and when Ali began to suffer the effects from, from all those blows to the head. But I hadn't done any of that. You know, Ferdy was my first interview. Like I said, somebody has to be first. And uh, it really wasn't going well. He, he started yelling at me more and more. And I, you know, I said to him, you know, how did you get involved in boxing? And he said, you know, he did it because he could go to the fights for free. But what does that have to do with anything? You know, the, he seemed a little bit dismissive of Ali. He seemed to be putting him down a little bit at times, but he wouldn't go into any kind of specifics with me. So I, I realized, began to realize that this was going to be a short interview, and I, I began to ask more and more direct questions. And, and I said, listen, you know, you, I see you, you're a lover of history. There, there are all these history books on your wall, and it's really important that we record the people who knew Ali best, who were there along the way. And someday, you know, this story is going to be read by people who, who never even saw Ali fight. And, and you were there. You know, I need, I need firsthand information. And he just kept saying, that's basic. That's basic. Of course I was there. I said, so tell me when you, began to became, when you became concerned about the head injuries. Um, 
you know, how does a doctor even work as a ring doctor? You know, why don't you just tell them not to fight? And he said, well, you're, you're, the, you're the ring doctor. Your job is to get them in the ring. Your job is to get the man ready to box. If you, don't, if you tell them that they shouldn't be boxing, you don't get paid, and nobody gets paid, and there's no boxing. Uh, that's basic. <laughs> uh, uh, I really couldn't find any questions that just got him talking, that made him comfortable, that made him want to share information with me. And what happens when, when, when you're in that kind of a defensive position and you're feeling uncomfortable, and we can play a little bit of the tape and you can hear me stammering and, and you can hear how, how nervous I sound. What happens when, when you're in that kind of a position is that you end up lobbing bombs, right? Like you ask the big questions, you just hope you get something out of this interview. And it was at that point, as this thing got awkward, that I reached into my pocket and took out the tape recorder and put it down in front of him. So that probably didn't help because it probably made him more antagonistic. I, had, I knew this was gonna be a short interview and I needed to record it as soon as possible. And I said, so when did you first notice that he was suffering brain damage? And he said, after the Frazier fight. After the beginning, after the Frazier fight, we was already showing damage. Mm -hmm. Why? Why? Because he had it stumbling around. He was mumbling. He couldn't talk straight in the interviews. And do, I mean, it was so obvious. Yeah, sure, he had a lot of brain damage. Even, even after the first Frazier fight? After the first Frazier fight, he had the first, because he really got beat up. Did anybody try to tell him? Yeah, I did. And what did he say? No, he didn't. He didn't see that. He didn't think he had brain damage. I couldn't stop him. I tried, I couldn't stop him. How'd you try? Just tell him the commission. Mm -hmm. Listen, take a look at this guy. Don't be blind. You're a doctor, look at him. Mm -hmm. Examine him. Does he sound like he did yesterday? No. Does he sound like he did in a press interview? No. And that shocked me, really, because you know, he fought Frazier three times, the first time in 1971 and then again in 74 and 76. Oh, maybe it was 75. I should know that. And I said, which Frazier fight? He said, the first one. I said, are you kidding me? That's 1971. He fought for another 10 years after that. You're telling me that you saw signs of brain damage, not just a concussion, but like lasting brain damage in 1971? And he said, yeah, absolutely. For Ali, do you think it was the money that, that mostly kept him going when he should have stopped, or was it, was it other? No, it wasn't mostly. It was the Muslims mm. and the money. And the Muslims and the money the same thing. The Muslims got all their money out of, out of him that they could. So you have somebody saying, give me some money, I need a church. And, uh, and him just pissing away the money. That's why he kept fighting, and I thought that's... I, I would later come to see that that's a pretty... Uh, narrow-minded view of it. Ali wanted to keep fighting. There's no question about it. The Muslims were were not taking his money. Herbert Muhammad, one of the Muslims, was taking a big chunk of his money. But that's hardly the only reason that Ali kept boxing. It's much more complicated than that. He loved boxing. He loved the attention that it brought him. He loved the money that, that it brought him. And he always had money problems. He gave away and blew tons of money over the course of his career. I don't think that's the only reason. Pacheco also acknowledged that it was the money, that Ali liked the money, too, and needed the money. And he was married and divorced several times. He had alimony to pay. He had this huge entourage of people. Pacheco bragged that he didn't get paid. He's one of the only guys in the entourage who wasn't getting paid, um, which I believe to be true. Nevertheless, you know, Pacheco and a lot of other people were dependent on Ali for their income, and Ali understood that. He realized that, you know, he was the leader of this, of this brigade and that in order for the brigade to continue, for everybody to be happy, everybody to pay their bills, you know, he had to keep fighting. And I think that was a big part of it. I think he loved boxing and loved the attention. And the sad thing is he, he began to realize, too, that Pacheco was right, that it was causing damage to his brain. 
Ali knew it. He began asking about it in interviews. He began saying, even in the late 70s, do you think I'm talking slow? Do you think I'm, my speech is, do you think I'm stammering? You know, do you, think I'm, you think I'm brain damaged? He would ask reporters all the time. And it was just so sad to see. Um, and it was sad that Pacheco couldn't stop him, but, you know, Pacheco didn't quit either. You know, he, he and the others in Ali's entourage could have said, you know, we're, we're out of here. We're not going to support this anymore. We're not going to let you do this to yourself. If you want to keep boxing, you do it without us. Pacheco did eventually, in the late 70s, quit and say, I won't be a part of it anymore. He's the only one. Um, Angelo Dundee and all the others, um, all, the, all the trainers, all the sparring partners, they all continued with Ali even when, they, when, when it was pretty clear that he was doing brain damage to himself. After Pacheco quit in the late 70s, Ali went on to fight at least another three years. Um, and Pacheco wrote letters to Ali's wife saying it's not just brain damage, it's, it's organ damage that he's suffering. He wrote a letter to the State Boxing Commission trying to urge them to strip Ali of his license. Nobody would act. Um, you know, there was just too much money involved. Everybody was cashing in on Ali, and nobody wanted to see it stop. And I think they realized that when Ali retired, boxing was never going to be the same. And Ali realized that when he retired, he was never going to be able to make that kind of money that quickly again, and he was never going to be the center of the universe again. And, you know, Pacheco's warnings went unheeded. Maybe that's part of why he's so angry, or maybe he just didn't like me. At one point when the interview was going badly, Pacheco said, I should pay him. He, I think he wanted $600. He said that's what Sports Illustrated had paid him for an interview recently. When I said, no, I don't pay for interviews, that, that certainly didn't help. Because the last time I was here, I got a guy from Sports Illustrated. I'm not sure which one. Anyway, they paid me $200 to do this, just, just this, to sit here and talk for an hour. I said, well, now that makes some sense. If you're going to pay me for my time, that makes some sense because I'm most working to make a living. Now that I don't have a living to make, I have to make it selling paintings, mm -hmm. selling myself in, in interviews and, and so forth. Tune in next time for the story of how I met Ali's second wife, Kalila, and how I wound up crawling under her bed on Christmas Day looking for a box of old letters. Thank you.